Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. And right now, Thomas Hearns is an open book for Ray Leonard. Backs up against the ropes. This is one of the most unusual calls by a referee in the history of the sport. The first loss. A tremendous victory. Leonard fighting off the ropes. It happened. It happened. Number cut by Douglas. Down goes Tyson. Hooks it. Right hand shot. Excellent. Knocks out by Tyson. Slugs to the canvas. The champion struggles to stay on his feet. How do you like it? Fight fans to another episode of BTR Boxing Podcast, Legendary Nights. And this episode has been voted for by you, the users of Twitter, the listeners of BTR Boxing Podcast. And the subject for this poll was On the Verge of Defeat. And you voted for Carl Froch versus Jermaine Taylor from 2009. Carl Froch's first defence of his WBC Super Middleweight title. But before we get into the episode today, I want you guys to go and check us out on social media at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook as well. Please go and subscribe to the podcast. Apple Podcast is the main platform. Find us on there, subscribe, leave us a rating, leave us a review, let us know what you think of the podcast. Also, we are on Podbean, we are on Stitcher, on Spreaker, on Player FM, we're on all good available podcasting apps out there, we're even on Spotify. Just type in BTR Boxing Podcast and you will find us there to follow us and listen to all the latest episodes. So, Johnson Brown's going to be going through this episode with me today. We're going to be covering off the tale of Cal Froch versus Jermaine Taylor from back in 2009. So coming up, our main event, Carl Frotch has fought only once in America and only once on U.S. television last year on Showbox. The undefeated Frotch is a bone-chilling puncher, folks, with a rock-solid chin and a steely determination. In England, they would refer to him as a hard man. There have been a handful of outstanding super middleweights from the U.K., including Nigel Benn, Chris Eubank, and most recently, Joe Calzaghe. Those champions all fought here in the States. So, 
This is Carl Frotch versus Jermaine Taylor from back in 2009 and one of the greatest shot comebacks in, in boxing to date. It's definitely one that springs out in mind as I felt like Frotch was, was losing. He was losing. He was losing on the cards in this one and then for him to come back and produce a stunning upset at the end of the fight, it was it was an unbelievable way to make his mark on American soil, and I'm really excited to be talking about this one today, Johnston. Oh, I'm really excited to be talking about this one. It was just it was a remarkable comeback from Carl. Um, as you say, he was blood on on two of the scorecards. I had him down myself, as you, as you rightly pointed out, you did too, and he had to take him out, and that's what he did, and it was brilliant, absolutely outstanding finish to the fight, and it was one that will always, always live long in the memory for myself, and I'm sure with many boxing fans. And going into this, as we talk about both of their careers, we forget how storied of a career they both ended up having over the years, and just pointing out one particular fact from the off, Jermaine Taylor was actually the favourite going into this fight, although he wasn't the champion and although he was moving up to super middleweight after spending the majority of his career at middleweight and, and doing really well down at middleweight, he was actually the favoured fighter in this particular fight, even though Frotch had just come through a fantastic fight with Jean Pascal, which we'll touch on shortly, and he was the WBC champ going into this fight and he was actually the underdog, strangely, enough going into this fight it was it was crazy to think that he was the guy that was going over there with the you know the the most recognized title in boxing the wbc title and yet he was the guy that all the american fans were like who the hell is he who is cal frotch yeah it's quite funny really i think even uh jermaine taylor in the build-up to the fight was uh mentioning uh who is carl sort of thing you know but um carl had done it over over here especially i think we all knew carl was i think most of us had followed carl frotch carl frotch's career um i think with with the idea that hopefully it eventually fight an aging and coming to the end of his career carl zaggy which didn't quite sort of come to light but yeah interesting how jermaine had become the favorite considering obviously his two defeats against pavlik as well so yeah, really interesting. I suppose maybe the fact that he's on American soil, no one quite knew where he stood, whether you know whether he was good enough to compete with a guy like Jermaine Taylor. So yeah, interesting fact really. And um, yeah, and I think uh, even even more makes it, it makes it even more impressive that Cole did what he did. So let's go into Cal's career first and foremost, then, and talk about Cal. Obviously, for us being UK based fans uh, and UK based podcasters, Cal is is obviously to us, you know, he's he's a bit of a he's a bit of a hero really in terms of boxing and what he's what he's been on to achieve after this particular fight. Again, we'll touch on that in the aftermath segment of the show. But going back to when I first was introduced to Carl as a fighter, I'd say it was around 2004. So he must have had about 10, 11 fights before I seen him fight for the Commonwealth Super Middle title against Charles Adamu and getting the victory on points over Charles there and then from then on I started to follow his career as he progressed and the only other time he actually, he'd actually been over to America prior to the Taylor fight was in 2005 against Henry Porras so it was his second visit going over to America for the Taylor fight but I'd like I said I'd seen him from the moment he beat Charles Adamu and from there on I started to follow his career as he progressed on and, and picked up the, the British super middleweight title at the end of 2004 and then that's really when I started to think you know I really like this guy this is I really like his style he's, he's, he's just dead unorthodox the way he puts his hands dead low and you know the way he just sort of he, he got it's strange because he's got this sort of style which kind of it's like a fencing type style he just throws that he sort of throws the jab out in, 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 in anticipation of throwing 
you know, the, the, the great right hand over the top as well. And he's always made a career out of it, to be honest, with, with the way he's done that. And as his career's progressed on throughout the years, it's something I've really enjoyed watching. But sometimes it's not always been something I've enjoyed watching as well at the same time, because sometimes he's notorious for being such a slow starter. But going back to Frotch's career, when was it you first got introduced to Frotch as a fighter? Uh, for me, I mean, I, I knew of Frotch sort of around, roughly around the time uh, when you picked him up. But um, mine was a little bit after yours, Sean. Um, for me, it was sort of the Robin Reed fight. That was the one that caught my attention. Um, but he, even before then, you know, I had heard of his name. I hadn't really seen, I'd seen bits and fragments of Frotch. And as you say, there was always, he had that style, didn't he? he almost saw, at times, he almost went sort of, he would throw that jab and, as you say, follow it up with the right. And he, he almost ended up square on at times, which is always quite interesting because, you know, you never talk to be square on. But when he really went on the assertive and he went on the, uh, he was being aggressive, he would just keep throwing left and right. So, um, and that always was something that always stood out for me. And obviously, throughout his career, he ended up finishing off guys that way. He knew when to do it, though. I mean, there's times, obviously, you don't want to be, course got sort of square footed because you're going to get put away but you've got to know when to do it and I think that ability gradually come, come to the forefront in his career but yeah Robin Reed was was a time when I really that was the fight I did watch of, of Frotch's live and um, you know, I, I really enjoyed it Robin I knew Robin Reed before that so and then obviously going on to the uh, the Gene Pascal fight was definitely one I remember watching clearly and uh, when he picked up that WBC title. Well, some of the most notable fights I would say Frotch had leading up to the Jermaine Taylor fight was obviously when he first picked up a professional title, like I said, when he picked up the Commonwealth title. Now, he did win the vacant W, I say W, British Boxing Board of Control English Super Middleweight title, which was back in 2003. But that, you know, is regarded quite highly in terms of the smaller hall events that we have here in the UK. But once you sort of get past that level, you're looking at Commonwealth, British, European, and then moving on to the world. Significant fights for me was when he beat Charles Adamu. Another significant fight was when he knocked out Brian McGee, who was a right tough opponent, uh, and when he defended the British and Commonwealth titles against Brian McGee. He had a great war with Tony Dodson in 2006 that's a fight that I would say to listeners who might have not seen that part of Frotch's career go and check out the Tony Dodson fight from 2006 that was an absolutely fantastic scrap between two warriors and that's a fight that you know I would say was quite significant in terms of getting to see how much of a granite chin Frotch had at that early stage of his career bearing in mind he'd been a professional for four years at this point he really had that granite chin and that hard punching style that at that point as well and it was only a matter of time before he was going to progress on and as you said and rightly pointed out he faced Robin Reed who at this point of Robin Reed's career was was arguably way past his best let's be honest Robin Reed was a champion of the 90s he was WBC super middleweight champion in the mid 90s to late 90s and he had some great great fights himself but I think at this point in 2007 Robin Reed was for me way past his best and then before the Jean Pascal fight he had a good fight with Al- Albert Rybacki as well in Nottingham who was 15 and 0 at the time Frotch fought him and he stopped Rybacki and that led into this fight with Jean Pascal which was probably my favourite fight of 2008. Oh, yeah, it, it was up there, wasn't it? It got voted, uh, I don't think it got voted the fight of the year, but it was it was definitely a contender. Um, it was uh, it was a real good scrap, actually. And and, it, it, and Gene Pascal was, uh, you know, he was a tough, tough guy. And it was interesting to see how, how Cold kind of, like, sort of guts come up against him, if you like. And 
obviously the vacant title was the WBC, so neither were champion going into the fight. Um, it was a good good bit of business to bring them bring Gene over to uh, Nottingham and, and it was just absorbing. I remember from literally sort of around a friend's house and we was we was just every minute of it we loved it and it was pretty tight, um but I think, you know, I say tight, it, although we won it you sort of unanimously, it was a it was a closer fight than, you know, if you just look it on paper, yeah, he's won it unanimously. It's like he's just shut him out. To be fair to Gene Pascal, he, he put on a decent performance himself, but I just think Cole really sort of put to the put to the forefront his ability and showed the world that you know he's a real name here now and you know and as I've already mentioned obviously I was following mainly through this point was uh, Calzaghi Calzaghi was obviously the guy I watched regularly so I always knew of as I say I always knew of Cole I didn't know how much ability he really had I'd seen the odd fights and I think this was the fight I think obviously that you've mentioned the Dobson fight which was a good scrap which I look back on um, I didn't watch it at the time and then Robin Reed. Uh, I think that for me was the Robin Reed. although as you say he was on the slide completely um, you know he retired in the end didn't he as well in the fifth so I think you're completely right there Robin Reed was never really that test I think Gene Pascal was that big test for Cole and he proved that you know, he's got the potential to, to be a world beater, and boy, did he prove it. Oh, he certainly did. The Jean-Pascal fight was a fantastic fight, and I remember it was back in the days when ITV picked up a lot of boxing, so it was on terrestrial TV here in the UK, and we was able to watch it for free, and this was one of the great fights that you got to watch for free on the telly, and, you know, we, we always talk about some of the stuff in the early 90s when we got to watch the likes of Ben and Eubank go at it. You know, they were actually free to air as well on the telly, and we'd not seen a lot of it in recent years because of all the pay-per-view stuff coming into fruition so this Jean Pascal fight on ITV for us was fantastic because we were getting the opportunity to see this British fighter undefeated going in uh, against another fellow undefeated fighter for a world title and it was huge for us because you know we want to see another super middleweight champion and and obviously when we had Joe Calzaghi around at the time you got to remember Joe Calzaghi had literally just retired after the after the Roy Jones Jr. fight he'd retired the month earlier so Joe Calzaghi had mm-hmm. fought Roy Jones Jr. in November of 2008 and obviously Frotch really wanted the fight with Calzaghi which we'll touch on a little bit later and Calzaghi decided to, to hang it up and call it a day so then it's kind of a passing of the torch situation really where we get this fight with Pascal which was a fantastic back and forth fight for 12 rounds now these guys I've got to be honest the way they both absorbed punches and the way they both threw punches in this fight it was a, a real rock'em sock'em phone box fight it was really 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 good and if, if anybody again that's listening to this episode if you've not watched the Jean-Pascal Carl Frotch fight then I really strongly recommend that you go and watch that fight sheer, she, for the sheer volume of punches and punches landed and, and the fact that this really was the coming out party of Carl Frotch yeah, it really was. It was. It was just. It was brilliant. I mean, do you know what? I actually forgot it was an ITV show. I, I really, you know, just reminded me myself. Uh, yeah, I mean, it. It was brilliant. It really, really top top fight. I mean, as I said, I, I don't recall off the top of my head what other fights there were in two thousand and eight. But uh, you know, this was definitely one of the best fights of the year. Um, uh, and it was just great to see finally, you know, another British fighter pick up a, a world title, and obviously the WBC, which is highly regarded in most across all the. the with all the, the main organisations. But yeah, excellent fight. And and as I say, I mean, it, all that was unanimous. You know, I, I sort of forget that. I know obviously uh, Froch won the fight, but it was just a brilliant, fl- a brilliant fight. And it was just, 
into it like you know it was just constant basically they, they landed so many powerful shots and they both showed granite chin and, and as I say Jean Pascal was a great fighter you know if anyone you say look at a fight completely watch this fight and just watch Jean Pascal who's a fantastic fighter to watch really was sort of similar to Carl where they you know if you like watching a tear up then go and watch Jean and, and, and Carl and you know you know they, their styles gelled perfectly so then we move on then and we talk about the opponent and it was Jermaine Taylor <laughs> the man that had dominated the middleweight division over the past three years before moving up to super middleweight. So touching a little bit on Jermaine Taylor's middleweight career, it was quite well documented at this point in time, in 2008, how good of a fighter Jermaine Taylor was. Now, Jermaine Taylor had worked his way up throughout the rankings in the middleweight division, picking up numerous ranking versions of the WBC title along the way, uh, and then he eventually got his shot at a certain Mr. Bernard Hopkins in 2005. But that was after beating the likes of Raul Marquez and William Joppy on his way up to get that shot at Bernard Hopkins. Now, Bernard Hopkins at this point in time, you, I think he was he the longest reigning middleweight champion. I think he'd been champion for about 10 years or something ridiculous like that at this point in time. So he'd, he'd been... 12, 12 years. There you go, 12 years. He'd ruled the division for 12 years at this point in time. And he'd come up against a young, fresh, hungry, hard punching Jermaine Taylor who beat him in the first fight by a split decision which was some might say was quite a controversial one but I watching that one back I felt like Jermaine Taylor had just edged it and I remember watching that fight at the time because I remember not knowing who Jermaine Taylor really was at this point even though he was well into his career and I knew who Bernard Hopkins was, but I didn't really know who Jermaine Taylor was. And to see him go in there uh, and, and put, put it on Bernard Hopkins the way he did, was like, wow, you know, I like this guy. This is, this is a cracking fighter. And, and subsequently, he got the rematch and, and beat Hopkins in the rematch as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that same as you. I, I That was the first time I had a Jermaine Taylor up. You know, it was the Bernard Hopkins fight. It was Builders next in line. Bernard Hopkins, obviously, on a tremendous run. 20 consecutive successful defences of his title. You know, he was unbeaten. Hadn't lost in 12 years. Um, well, he was beaten, so, but, you know, unbeaten in 12 years. He was he was the man, wasn't he? He was 40 years old as well, Bernard Hopkins. It's just unbelievable, isn't it? He's been a <laughs> is just unbelievable but um, but yeah we've uh, it, it, it was a very close fight I mean most people you know most of the pundits and reporters in and around and watched the fight believed that Hopkins won the fight um, I think several had Hopkins winning the fight I think when I first watched it at the time um, I, could, I really couldn't tell you it was just so it was so close I mean you could give a round to someone else you know you look away from the TV for a minute and look back you've missed a couple of shots you end up giving the other guy a round that's how close it was this was a very 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 close fight um, and yeah and, and uh, Taylor done the business I, I suppose just looking back in his career the one thing I will say is, is the William Joppy fight was probably his fight that made that sort of sort of got him in line for this the, the Hopkins fight in the end, but yeah, he lost the first fight um, to Hopkins in a way, um, and Hopkins weren't happy with that, uh, weren't happy about it, and he made an appeal which obviously was unsuccessful. You know, he had a moan, but <laughs> never mind. Um, and then obviously Jermaine Taylor, you know, he, he was from Little Rock, uh, um, 
Um, and he was uh, he basically came back to the massive parade um, in, in in sort of with all the belts, and he actually went to meet Bill Clinton. So this guy shot for fame from his victory against Bernard Hopkins. And then in the, in the second fight was just as close. Exactly the same. I think Taylor definitely won that fight for me, but it was just as close. Very very close fight. And yeah, it was it was looking great for Jermaine. He was doing great things, and he you know the first guy to win. The, the undisputed titles in just one fight and that's a record that's uh, still around today he's the only guy in the middleweight division to have held, held all four belts crazy isn't it with all the politics that go on that you know that happened and has not happened since and we're what 14 years down the line from when that originally happened it's absolutely mental to think that all the politics that play a huge part in today's organisations and the way the governing bodies still work today is, is, is crazy but yeah shooting to fame by beating Bernard Hopkins there's no better way to do it really and now Bernard Hopkins as we know was the guy just couldn't help but have a moan at anything throughout his career you know considering what he went through earlier on in his career you know the fact that he lost on his professional debut the fact that he was in prison for a period of time the fact that he got beaten early on in his career of, of a absolute prime Roy Jones Jr and then for him to go on the way he did and dominate the middleweight division for such a long period of time yeah there was eventually going to be someone that came along and dethroned him and that was Jermaine Taylor and Jermaine Taylor at this point in time was I think he was a phenomenal fighter in the middleweight division I think not a lot of people give him that credit he deserves even today like I say even 14 years down the line in the middleweight division I think if you threw a prime Jermaine Taylor in with one of the big guys we've got in the middleweight division today I think you'd, you'd see some cracking fights absolutely cracking fights he was a brilliant fighter uh, in what I would say was his prime so then he moves on two wins over Bernard Hopkins proving that the first one wasn't a fluke and then he goes in against a 53 vet- veteran in Ronald Winky Wright. Gets a draw in that particular fight. And at this point, the only titles that were on the line were the WBC and WBO title. Yeah, that's right. I think he got stripped, didn't he, of a couple of the, a couple of the titles. Um, not quite sure the ins and outs of that. I, I think it was probably to do with a mandatory. That's what I'm guessing. Tends to be the case, doesn't it? But... Um, yeah, it was a, it was another very tight fight again. Well, that doesn't matter. Another excellent fighter. Um, sort of to the end of his career at the time as well. I think he went on a, a bit of a downslide after that. If I remember rightly, he lost I think the last few of his fights after. I can't remember off the top of my head who they were. I haven't really looked into it to be fair. But um, but yeah, Taylor again. You know, it was it was a it was a close fight. But um, I think he even he, he uh, was his manager. I think Ozell Nelson that was unsatisfied with. Taylor's progression uh, between the first and second fights of Hopkins. So he actually convinced Taylor uh, to replace Pat Burns, who was his longtime trainer, with Emmanuel Stewart. So Emmanuel Stewart coming for the Winky Wright fight, um, and obviously it didn't quite go to plan. It was a close fight, as I say, and you know again you could give, you could go either way. But this is the level, you know. You talk about right, you talk about Taylor, you talk about Hopkins. These these three guys were, were were the three best in the division, um, and they all fought each other, which is something we we do get. Obviously, we've seen Canelo and uh, Golovkin, which is nice, and it's like the third ones were happen. But you know, it, it just shows you that you know, even though it was you know back in two thousand five, two thousand six, these guys were fighting each other, and Taylor was coming out on top. Although obviously he got the draw in this, it was close. It was very close. Um, so yeah, and obviously that was when he went on to made a couple of defense, didn't he? He fought uh, Kassam Uma. Um, who I'm not too familiar with, and then Corey Spinks, who I am, and that was a uh, another good, that was another tight, good fight. 
It was, and them two fights, I think, really put him in good stead for for what was about to come, which was another young, hungry, undefeated middleweight in Kelly Pavlik, who came there, 31 fights undefeated. Relatively unknown to the wider boxing audience. Obviously, if you was an American fan back in 2007, you probably would have known Kelly Pavlik really, really well because of the exposure that the fighters get over in America. But over here in the UK, he wasn't as well known at this point in time so people had only really just started latching on to Jermaine Taylor as a middleweight fighter and then Kelly Pavlik came along and dethroned him in the first fight which was for me where we started to see the flaws of Jermaine Taylor really come to fruition. I think Jermaine Taylor's stamina was one of the issues that would always trouble him throughout his career, but wouldn't become as evident until he got involved with the likes of Kelly Pavlik, and obviously fractures we'll talk about later on. But the Kelly Pavlik first fight, Kelly Pavlik came in there and absolutely did a demolition job on him, and it was it was quite shocking to see, because I think Jermaine Taylor had this aura of invincibility at this point of his career, this the confidence and a slight arrogance I think at times from, from Taylor at this point because he was I think maybe the people around him was really overinflating his ego at this point and whilst he seemed a, a genuine down to earth nice guy in a lot of the interviews you would have seen him in you could tell like, that some of the stuff he was saying in press conferences and build ups were, you could tell people were whispering in his ear a lot back then and I think that had a major impact on the way he went out there and the way he trained or didn't train enough or didn't do things correctly in camp which led to the to the ultimate demise and the loss of his middleweight titles in the first fight against Kelly Pavlik oh yeah it was uh, it was another good fight and he did he, he did sort of as you say his vulnerabilities were, were, were clearly um exposed by Pavlik um they actually fought during the amateurs as well, which Taylor defeated, defeated Pavlik back in 2009 in the United States Olympic trials. But in the first fight in particular, the second round, Taylor actually landed a right hand, followed up with several more punches, uh, which resulted in the first knockdown of the fight. So Pavlik actually went down in the second, but obviously he managed to recover well. And uh, in the end, he, he got rid of him um, with, you know, it was a, another, it was a great knockout. Um, but, I think, uh, as you say, it was it was just one of them. Eventually, I think it was going to going to come back to bite Taylor, where he would start fights pretty. You know, he would dominate the opening stages of a fight. You know, behind a, a lovely jab, he always worked well behind his jab and followed up with nice combinations. But as you say, the gas tank was was emptied, and you know, he was he, he was just running on empty a little bit. He, he was sort of he wasn't quite right. Obviously, not training properly. And Pavlik landed that that right cross that literally put put Taylor into the corner and then in the end um, yeah he just finished him off with a, with a right hook and, a, and an uppercut um, so yeah it weren't looking great Taylor obviously he straight away within a month he was, he was on the rematch he wanted to get the rematch with Pavlik and uh, which happened um, and then again Emmanuel Stewart he was fired by Taylor so you know you can see Taylor's camp sort of sort of on the it was, it was falling apart really I mean a bit like we mentioned with Mike Tyson the other week but he was sort of going down that same route. So, in the end, the second fight, and he lost by Yenem's decision this time against Public. Today's episode of BTR Boxing Podcast is sponsored by Bear Attack Boxing. Check them out on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And check out their website, www.bearattackboxing.co.uk. They've got another great product that's just been released, the Bear Attack Boxing Master One Focus Pads. They are the ideal pads for perfecting your boxing skills, for getting your shots accurate and fast. With 
the shock absorbent pad, your hands and wrists will be protected. The hook and loop strap makes it easy to secure your hands in the pads. So go and check out that new product, which is only $24.99 at www.bearattackboxing.co.uk. Social media, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Find them, Bear Attack Boxing. He did, and obviously, again, Pavlik proved that the first fight wasn't a fluke either, and he obviously reigned supreme as the middleweight king at this point after beating Jermaine Taylor for a second time, and then he decided at this point it was time to make a move up in weight, and he did, and he moved up in weight to fight former Joe Calzaghe opponent in Jeff Lacey, and he beat Jeff Lacey via a unanimous decision in 2008, at the back end of 2008, which gave him the opportunity and ranked him as the number one contender for the W. UBC title which was then won a month later by Carl Froch against John Pascal so the fight with Jeff Lacey obviously that was two American guys Jeff Lacey as we know was was hyped up to be a beast before Carl Zaghi did a little bit of a number on him back in 2006 and he was on the comeback trail he was looking to get back into title contention and he, he had this fight with Jermaine Taylor Jermaine Taylor beat him quite convincingly uh, via unanimous decision and then Jermaine Taylor got himself into the position to fight Carl Froch at this point and this is kind of where now we come on to to the next segment of it, which is the build-up. But the Jeff Lacey fight with Taylor, that was quite an interesting one because these were two guys that were former... Uh, former champions and former, you know, former guys that were that have been put there as potential elite level fighters. I mean, Jermaine Taylor, I think, had essentially done his part in becoming an elite level fighter by beating Hopkins, but I don't think Jeff Lacey had done that. But yeah, he was thrown in there with the chance to become the number one contender for the WBC title, which was held by Froch. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it was as well. It was an eliminator, wasn't it, for the super middleweight division. Um... For, for the WBC super middleweight title, which obviously was held by uh, Carl Froch after beating Pascal, and it is interesting because obviously Jeff Lacey was 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 apparently this killer, wasn't he? He was like the smaller Mike Tyson. They dubbed him in America. They thought he was going to be the next best thing, and then obviously you know we all know what what Joe Calzaghe done to him. He literally done a number on him. He battered him left, right, and centre. Then he air for, for twelve rounds. It was an outstanding performance bump from Calzaghe. So obviously with Taylor, with the two public losses, those two first defeats. First time he'd ever been down in his career, Taylor. So, as a matter of licking his wounds and getting himself back on the saddle and trying to get himself back in contention, and obviously decided to move up in weight. Again, that's sometimes it's an indication where they're either struggling with the weight or it's because they're not training too well. So, it's difficult to work out. I think looking at the history of Taylor and how it developed going on from this point, I'm guessing he probably wasn't training too much. And I think, obviously, maybe the, the fire, he lost that fire out of his belly when he first started and come out of it as a bronze, you know, he won a bronze medal in, in the Sydney Olympics. So, obviously, coming through his career, he was always, you know, he was he was managed by Lou Bella. You know, he was on, on some big undercard cards at the MGM early in his career. So, you know, to get to this point of his career and have every single title, you know, undisputed, maybe, maybe the situation is that maybe a few too many blows to the head, gain the distance, you know, start to lose his marbles a little bit, as well as the fact that, you know, maybe that, you know, that fire in the belly's gone. But, you know, he's still produced good performances, don't get me wrong, but um, obviously Jeff Lacey as well, trying to come back from a humiliated defeat. So it's an interesting fight, and Taylor did do a number on him, you're right, Sean, he absolutely battered him. So then we get the build-up to the fight between Froch versus Taylor. So Froch was coming over to America for only the second time in his professional career. And funnily enough, as I was saying at the top of the show, Froch was also not only the underdog, 
in betting odds for this fight. He was also actually ranked lower in the Ring Magazine rankings, despite being the champion. So he was actually at number six in the Ring Magazine rankings, and Jermaine Taylor was ranked above him at number five, which is quite strange given the fact that Jermaine Taylor had only recently moved up to the super middleweight division and had only beaten Jeff Lacey to become the number one contender so he was automatically given this on a plate when you think about it he was given the opportunity straight away when he moved up to fight for an elimination an eliminator so he gets his opportunity and yet he's still ranked above Cal Froch but for me Cal Froch was the guy that needed to come over to America and he, he does say it when you watch the interviews back in the lead up to the fight Froch is being asked by Al Burstein about you know why do you feel you need to come over to America and, and what is it about America and it's like well he needs to make a big statement he needs he, he was talking about the fact that he needed to make a statement he needed to come over to America make the statement he wanted to be in big fights he didn't want to be in fights against people that nobody knew who they were these sort of fights winning them in style against a marquee name like Jermaine Taylor is how I'm going to establish myself I want to become a superstar in America to show people what I'm about what the Cobra can do I'm ready for him I've just beat Pascal in, in a great fight over 12 rounds, which is, is being dubbed as fight of the year. I'm WBC world champion at Super Middleweight. I want to get straight into these big fights. I'm 31 years old. I've not got five, six years of sitting around doing nothing, wasting time, defending against people that nobody's heard of. And I can catapult myself to superstardom. So this was it for him. This was the start of Froch's magnificent run of fights that he had right up until the end of his career and he was very much right in what he said in the interview with Al Bernstein he said he didn't want to be involved in fights against no people that knew nobody knew and for sure this was the start of the run which is probably one of the most toughest runs in in boxing history I mean I'd like to see what other runs compare to this in boxing but this was one of the most toughest runs that you can see anybody have in this day and age it's unbelievable the run of fights that he went on because you got to remember after this we had the super six tournament after this particular fight so that's where we'll go into in the aftermath segment of the show but yeah going into it he wasn't really known in america nobody knew who he was he was coming over he was just this englishman as he was referred to a lot by the broadcasters on showtime he was just an englishman coming over who was a hard man they were the words that the broadcasters were using he's known in England as a hard man that's what they had him down as but no I I, I really enjoyed the build up between the two of them because Jermaine Taylor he was quite confident and quite cocky and quite arrogant and I think he felt like his previous victories over some of the biggest fighters in boxing were going to put him in good stead against a guy who nobody knew I had reached everything that I wanted to accomplish in boxing here it is I got all this money and I'm you know I'm I'm relaxed now. You know, I'm not making no excuse because that's my own that's my own mentality. But I feel like that's what happened. I just think, you know, it's boxing. You know, um, in boxing, either you're up or you're down. You know, either you're number one or you're nothing. I miss being number one. And I, I, I didn't think I'd get that back, but I do. And, you know, I miss having those belts. And, you know, being looked at as, as champ, you know, when a person called me champ, you know, I know I really am, you know, number one, how to keep it, how to keep that drive. And Carl Froch, um, you know, he's an overseas guy, uh, comes to fight. He never lost, so he don't know how to lose. I'm just going to take the fight to him. Just, I'm going to teach him how to lose. Yeah, and he was, he was pretty clear in, that, in his statements, but he? He, did, he did keep sort of bringing that up, the fact that who are you, no one knows who you are. Look, you know, basically, I'm Jermaine Taylor, you know, I'm this superstar. And, um, 
Yeah, it's funny that that Foch came in as the underdog. I suppose the fact is, you know, coming obviously going on to American soil. You know, I suppose that's probably the one thing you could say. Uh, but for me, I, you know, I think it was, you know, Jermaine obviously moving up a weight and also being beaten twice by Pavlik. Um, Foch being this young guy coming in and he was eager and in our, the interview you just you mentioned just there with with uh, Al Bernstein was you know he weren't lying there was I mean you hear it today with some fighters and they will sort of say you know uh, after this this is it I'm going to continue I just want to fight big, big big fights for the rest of my career and they don't that doesn't tend to happen but with Cole that happened and it was an amazing fight from the Pascal fight on to the Jermaine Taylor being second in that uh, sequence. But yeah, it was unbelievable, really, that, that Cole did exactly what he said. Um, and he did actually keep a diary, Cole. Um, he liked it. I don't know if um, many people know that Cole always kept a diary throughout all of his career. And sort of in the build up to this fight in particular, and I quote, he said, uh, I've, I've been doing the same six mile run in Nottingham for the last seven years. I normally do it in 35 minute which is under six minutes a mile recently i was shocked to break my best time so i'm running faster i'm punching harder than i've ever done before i feel so strong mentally and more mature uh, than when i turned pro seven years ago jermaine taylor is in serious trouble and that was Cole Froch's quote just before the fight. <laughs> Not one for uh, confidence, was he, Froch? Uh, he had plenty <laughs> of it. And this was this was definitely the early stages of the Froch we know today, for sure, where he was so... He was so overrun with that confidence and belief in himself that people did mistake it at times for arrogance. And I think looking back on on what he achieved throughout his career was obviously, I think the confidence was a big part of of a lot of the fights that he were involved in. And he had to be confident to be sure he was going to go in there and and win them fights. But that's for another day to talk about the career of Carl Frott. We're here to talk about the fight with Taylor today. And this fight with Taylor is, is something that will go down, as I've said at the top, of the show in in history of one of them big upsets not so much because he was a heavy underdog in the fight yes Froch was an underdog in the fight but it was more so the manner in in the way the fight ended and which which is what we're going to move on to now we're going to move on to the fight itself and talk about how the fight actually went down in our opinions and from what we interpreted now watching back the fight I noticed that Taylor, as you rightly pointed out a little bit earlier on in our conversation, Taylor came out of the block straight away, and he was the one that was on the offensive straight away. He was out there to take centre ring, and he landed uh, quite a big right hand on Carl Froch in that first round, which obviously the commentators were were really overemphasising the fact that he'd landed this right hand on Froch. And you know what, what we know now is how hard of a man Froch really is, because he could eat them right hands all night. He really could, and. And it was the start of what was going to be a difficult night for Froch, to be honest, because let's let's have it right, this fight was a really difficult one for him. He was coming in against a guy who was quite tricky, and with Froch being a notoriously slow starter, it was going to take him a little while to get going. And just alluding back to the build-up, one thing he did say, and one thing Froch was counting on in this particular fight, was the fact that he wanted to pace himself because he felt like Jermaine Taylor was going to gas in the second half of the fight. So he did come out quite tentative in that first round and in the second round. And Taylor came out of the blocks flying and he was throwing shots left, right and centre to, 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 to kind of win them rounds. And a lot of them were popping shots and he was winning the early early rounds because he he was a lot more active than Froch. And Froch really wasn't doing enough in the early rounds to, to justify winning him. And one thing I will quickly point out, Johnston, as well is... Yeah. 
we've got Robert McCracken in the corner for Carl Froch. And one of the most notable things I took away from watching this fight back was Robert McCracken's advice in between rounds of the fight. The advice he was giving to Carl Froch was 110% the best advice he could have had in that fight. And the reason I bring that up is so much so because of the fact that Robert McCracken has been taking a lot of flack recently because of the defeat that Anthony Joshua suffered to Andy Ruiz Jr. in the heavyweight division and people calling for Robert McCracken to be fired and someone else brought in and looking back on this particular fight with Froch he knew exactly what Froch was doing wrong and he knew exactly what he needed to do to make it right and the advice he was given which you can quite clearly be heard in between rounds were was some of the best advice I'd ever heard from a trainer and it just for me reminded me of how underrated Rob McCracken was as a trainer I couldn't agree with you more um he made a massive difference in that fight. I think I think the one thing you will notice when when you do look at the, if anyone watches when you do watch the fight back, if you know the viewers do, hope they do, is just the fact how how Fudge took that information in. It was a great relationship they had between them. Um, I think uh, Joshua, like um, you obviously mentioned in the Joshua fight, uh, and he has and Ross McCracken has been coming under unfair criticism. If it was one way, I think McCracken was giving Joshua the wrong by information, I just don't think Joshua was taking it in. And you see the composure and the calmness in front, you know. He didn't look worried, even though he probably felt, in fact, he was told by McCracken a few, in a, a few of the corners, corner breaks, if you like. Um, and uh, it was mentioned that, you know, you are around a couple of rounds down, you need you need to do this, you need to do that. He was spot on with his advice, and and you are completely right. Um, and and Cole was just, you know, he, he took that advice on board, and, he, and when he went out there, he basically did exactly what, what was expected of him. Um, and he knew what he needed to do every single round, and, and he produced it. So, I, I, you know, going back to the fight, um, I completely agree with, with you that Taylor was, you know, he was, he was working well behind that jab. Uh, I think the first round was close to call, because obviously, as you say, they kept on mentioning the right hand that, that Taylor caught. Uh, Frotch did catch in with one as well. So, it was like a bit even that first round, but then second, third, even going into the fourth, um, you know, they both, especially in the fourth, they both landed uh, left hands, uh, Cole with an uppercut and uh, Taylor with a, a stiff jab. But actually, I'm jumping. And I, sorry, I've just come right on the gun because we're missing the third. So the third hand, sorry. Um, yeah, so so Taylor landed a big right hand on, on Cole um, as Cole sort of went on the attack, which clearly dazed Cole. He sort of tried to retreat a bit and recover. Um, I think even in afterwards in the, in the uh, interview, he said he didn't hurt him, but he was clearly hurt. He caught him again with a left, but he's, he, I think, again said I was a bit off balance but in the second eventually that big right hand come through hit Cole bang on the chin um, and put him down for the first time in his career
Yeah, it's interesting you talk about that third round in particular, and that was the round where, like you just said, Froch had been put down on the seat of his pants for the first time in his career. But it was a lot of it was carelessness from Froch because he was looking to load up a lot in them early rounds. He was looking for the more one-shot, concussive, knockout power shots, you know, to get Taylor with. He was looking to really hurt Taylor when he landed. And the biggest mistake, I think, that was made in that fight from the Frotch camp earlier on, or Frotch himself, so to speak, was the fact that he didn't land enough combinations. He was looking for very much just the one shot. And when he threw that one shot, he was dropping he was dropping his left hand a lot and he weren't using the left hand to block anything coming back. So what was happening was Taylor would throw he immediately throw the right hand back and with the left hand being down or frotched he was catching him and that's eventually what led to the knockdown he caught a couple and you could see watching back on it that the left hand was dropped slightly to, to around about his sort of stomach area and and the came, this came a looping shot over the top from Jermaine Taylor and one straight down the pipe and that's what caught him and he got a bit he got a bit scruffy when he knocked him down it was a bit of a scruffy one because Frotch was trying to be you know he's trying to sort of muscle his way to throw one of his own shots but in the same process he was leaving himself wide open to get caught with that shot which buzzed him and knocked him down and the look on Frotch's face said said it all really he was shocked he thought you know you could tell at this point he was thinking what's just happened here he even looked over to his corner to Rob McCracken and he was like what's just happened here and again I go back to the advice given in the corner because it was brilliant because after that round when he was brought back to the corner he got he got spoken to and he got an absolute rollicking from McCracken because McCracken told him exactly what he'd done wrong and why he'd got knocked down there and what he needed to do to, to, to make it right which was to keep that left hand up when he was throwing the shots out because he was letting Taylor come back with an automatic right and that's what was leading to you know, a lot of the, the shots that Froch was receiving from Taylor throughout that particular fight. But yeah, you move on from there and, and the fourth and fifth again are Taylor rounds where I felt like Taylor was more busy, he was more active, he was landing more shots than Froch was. But Froch, you know, he was coming back with the odd one or two shots in the fight, but it, it was just too for me it was too much of a case of he was trying to look for that one telling blow which was gonna hurt Taylor. And the talk of him waiting for the second half of the fight, look, again looking back in hindsight of, of the fight and watching it back today, you can then you can kind of see Frotch wasn't really putting anything on the gas at all really, I think he was doing enough to keep the rounds competitive but he weren't doing enough to win a lot of the rounds in that first half of the fight, but then we move in to the 6th round and the 6th round for me was one of the significant rounds of the fight and one of the turning points of the fight because this is where Frotch then started to turn on the work a little bit he started to put the work in he started to throw more punches he started to throw more combinations and this is where it became a much more interesting fight as we got into that 6th round yeah definitely um yeah, following the knockdown, Jermaine was it was just quicker to the counter, wasn't he? He was showing his his quick hand speed, and he was beating Cole to the punch. And every time sort of Cole went to go on the aggressive, as you're saying, trying to throw one shot rather than sort of following up. Um, you know, he was just getting caught. But yeah, moving into the sixth, I think that was the round when when Cole sort of found his composure. It was probably his best round of the fight. He landed a big right hand on the button that sort of Taylor took well. Uh, Taylor tried with a late burst in the sixth, but um, for me it was a pretty clear cold round, and he was he was starting to follow up with instead of throwing that 
he'd throw that jab but he'd, he'd follow up with a right and even a left if he had to again so he was throwing tons of threes and he was starting to impose himself on Taylor and you could see Taylor in and around seven he was starting to I wouldn't say he was tiring completely but whether it was Cole imposing himself on Taylor and then Taylor on the slide slightly you know obviously you know you can watch Taylor fights and you see you sort of get the championship rounds is the times when he hopes he's got a, a, a sort of a big enough lead to take into the rest of the round they were close rounds again I just felt definitely the sixth round in particular Cole won that round as probably what is one of his most convincing rounds up until that point um, and then round seven was pretty much a batter and a jab uh, it was close to call again uh, Taylor was landing counters he called Frotch with a left um, and then Frotch landed a solid right of his own but most of the work was behind their jabs um, and again, it was a close round, but Frotch was definitely starting to, to start throwing a few more punches and then moving into the eighth. Um, yeah, you call it, Sean. And from the eighth, it was, a, it was another good round and an excellent round, actually. Yeah, it was. And I really enjoyed the eighth round in particular because the eighth round was where we started to really see Frotch put the pressure on, but he put his foot on the pedal. He started to put the, the, the more emphasis on his combination punching as he'd not done in the previous rounds before that. And you could see this was where Taylor had started to slow down at this point because he had really he'd really put a lot into the fight going up into going up to this eighth round. He'd really put a lot of effort, especially in them first four or five rounds. He'd really gone to town on trying to essentially put Carl Frotch away and get him out of there. And I think I don't think Taylor was anticipating. I don't know if he. I don't even know if he trained for that twelve round fight. I mean, it's difficult to say now. I mean, without ever speaking to the guy, but it felt like. His issues that he had in the Pavlik fight were well, still the same issues he had going into the fight with Frotch, and which is why Frotch was so adamant that the second half of the fight he was going to take him into them deep waters he always referred to. And that is essentially what he started to happen from the 8th, 9th and the 10th round. He really started to, to go to work and he really started to get into range. And that was one of the biggest issues I think Frotch had in the first half of the fight was range and not getting into range to get the shots off against Taylor, looking for them one shots, just falling short a lot of the time. And that's what made yeah. it more difficult for him but as he started to get closer he just took that sort of one step forward and it was that one step forward as he was throwing the punches which were making a massive effect on the fight because they were landing more some of them landed on gloves some of them landed behind the gloves some of them landed clean but when they were getting through you could tell they were visibly more telling than what they were previously and you could tell Jermaine then started to respect the power a little bit more of Cal Frotch in that latter half of the fight but he was starting to blow out a little bit and that was where it became difficult for him to to stay out of range, to, to do what he'd done for the first half of the fight, which was to keep Carl trying to chase him down the ring, you know, hunt him down, trying to throw them shots. And eventually, as he sort of moved into the championship rounds, it's where it became even more evident that the fight was potentially only going to go one way but you just couldn't tell at this point whether or not Frotch had enough in the tank to finish the fight because we know he, we, you know, at this point he's, he's starting to need the knockout going into sort of the 10th round he, he, a lot of the ringside observers a lot of the ringside press had Frotch three or four rounds down at this point I mean there was a couple of them that had him about I think it was about what five rounds down I think one particular uh, ringside observer had him down at obviously because of that 10-8 round in the third round and then the rest of the fight they'd hardly even give Frotch a sniff in the fight going into the championship rounds 
but the judges saw it slightly differently, which we'll talk about in a few moments when we come to the end of the fight. But yeah, going into the championship rounds then, Johnston, this is really where we started to get the excitement that we'd been waiting for from Kyle Froch. Yeah, it was pretty much um, Taylor working behind that jab, wasn't it? And, and he was he did try to take out Froch early. Obviously, you know, he... he uh, he did clearly start to tie. He was quite happy to start on the outside, coming in, going into the championship round. But, I mean, round nine was pretty even, to be fair. It was a close one to call. And that's basically all I've put down for the ninth. Because, you know, I think I think the eighth round where Cole was pretty dominant, I felt, at times. Uh, obviously, Taylor was catching uh, Fodge on the counter. And then um, there was a late burst. Taylor was, you know, it was a little flurry right at the end. And he caught a big left, left uppercut, eye-catching uppercut which clearly hurt Froch. So the ninth round was a little bit, whether Cole was still a bit buzzed maybe, or he just, he didn't quite really grab the initiative, but it wasn't until sort of round 10. And again, you alluded to McCracken and I've got even down here, you know, from my notes, even he even said like, you know, you're two, three rounds down, you, you need to, you, you know, you need to win the 10, you basically need to win the last three rounds. So that 10th round was a big round for Cole. Um, did disappoint. They threw more combinations and he finally started mixing it up in round 10. You know, most of the, most from sort of round one to round nine, Cole was just throwing headshots. There wasn't enough on the body. You know, if you're going to fight a guy that's elusive, you need to be targeting the body. And as you say, he just wasn't taking that extra step forward to, to get close enough to Taylor. So the 10th round in particular, again, he, he really went on the incentive, mixing up his shots a lot more, started to work the body. Um, Taylor was, you know, he, he was still in the fight. I'm not saying sort of fight was dominating it, but um, it was just a matter of Taylor thinking, I just want to get, through, get past his fight now. I think that was what Taylor's, you could see sort of even in round 11 or sort of coming, going into round 11, right at the end of round 10, Taylor's more, their corner is more, how long have we got left? Am I further enough ahead to just see these two rounds out? Where if you look on the other corner, you've got McCracken saying, you need these two rounds, Carl. You need to win these two rounds. You know, you're behind on the scorecards. And that was where in front up. See the impact on front and the difference between the two. You had Taylor on the defensive. And then you had Cole on the attack. And that was pretty much how it was going. And then, obviously, round 11, it was another another big round for Cole. Um, yeah, I, I'll, leave, I'll leave it to talk about the 11th before we go into the 12th show. Yeah, the 11th. <laughs> I would tell you what, it was great, weren't it? It was a really good to watch back <laughs> yeah. on today. I was watching back on the fight again, and I was just like, you know, this was really where it started up completely hotting up. As you rightly pointed out, Rob McCracken's basically telling Carl at this point, you, you need to you need to finish this guy off. <laughs> He's tired. You need to finish him off. You need to get in there now, and you need to start throwing more punches, and you need to be more combinations going in, because he could put the foot on the pedal and finish this fight and round 11 was brilliant because they both got some great exchanges going into there and I think at this point because Taylor was was really really tired and his stamina is really starting to, to fail him at this point he can't escape it's not like he could use lateral movement to get away and get out of range anymore he's literally having to fight inside the pocket and exchange a lot more with Carl and that was eventually what was going to be the undoing of him was you can't you can't hook with a hooker do you know it's, it's an old cliche <laughs> saying that that a lot of boxing experts talk about and it's so true because you can't get in there with a guy who can punch and fight in, in his range with the way Carl had them long levers because he did really have these long arms really long reach and if you're getting close enough and he can throw them short hard right hooks they're going to really hurt you and it was quite evident he was starting to hurt Taylor in the 11th round Taylor to his credit you know he, he really did come back and, and, and buzzed Carl a couple of times himself which was which was exciting because obviously 
the commentary, the way they interpreted the fight, it made it really competitive in the sense that you really felt like this could go either way, as in either man's going to get knocked down any second of the fight. And that was just credit to the commentators for, for adding their part to the fight. And I know we give commentators a lot of stick because sometimes they come out with some awful things in commentary, some awful sayings and some awful ways of interpreting fights. But the way the guys at Showtime commentated on this particular fight were brilliant. It really, it really made it in to a better fight than what it actually was because on the outset of it, it wasn't the most fantastic of fights really it was more the ending which we're going to talk about in a few seconds which is what made the fight as big as what we remember it today because of the way it ended going into that 12th and final round Cal Froch essentially on all the judges scorecards uh, was 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 behind. I think he was. Or was it two? I think he was four rounds two. behind on two of them, weren't it? Going into this final round, four rounds behind. So he had to knock Jermaine Taylor out to win. And boy, this was a fantastic round. This was certainly the way to come back from being on the verge of defeat. It was an epic round, absolutely brilliant. Uh, I mean, before we just touch on it, just there was one thing I picked up on watching the fight back was in round eleven. Um, and there was a clear indication that Taylor really started to feel the pace that, that Cole had set the fight at. And it was for the first time he actually seen Clint. I hadn't seen him do that. He was on the inside. He would he would he would be elusive. He'd get away. Um, but yeah, that that for me was a good. That was a turning point. I think in Taylor and I think even in Frost, he was like, well, okay, this is different. I've got this guy. Um, and obviously moving into the 12th, it was just epic, wasn't it? It was vintage Carl Frutz. Uh, both fighters were looking for the win. Um, they needed to, I think uh, Taylor didn't need to win the round. I think his corner did say to him, you need to go out and win the round. Obviously, Cole knew he had to win the round. So they both came out, both threw good clean shots before Cole landed a big left that stunned Taylor onto the right. Um, the first time you even hear it in the commentary, that they were sort of, he's stunned, he's stunned, um, he's hurt. Uh, but Taylor managed, to his credit, he managed to escape Cole's aggressive, you know, just, just, he wanted to, you could see Cole can sense blood, but again, to Cole's credit, he kept his composure in there, you know, he didn't rush his work, he, uh, he allowed Jermaine to escape from one side of the ring to the other, but, you know, Cole just continued to stalk him, um, and then in the end, uh, it, you know, it, Taylor was clearly in trouble, basically. Uh, he was managing to withstand constant pressure, and he absorbed some heavy shots from Cole, and to, to Taylor's credit, you know, he, he really did take some massive bombs from Cole. But Cole, again, took his time. In the end, it was two big rights that eventually threw Taylor into his own, into his corner. Right hand staggers. Taylor, Taylor's in trouble. Frost, pouring it on. Taylor, he's ready to go. A minute 45 to go. Frost, closing in. Carl Frost, gambling everything. Jermaine Taylor 
Yeah, so we somehow, <laughs> somehow managed to get up, and I think at that point I thought the fight was actually going to be over. I thought the referee was going to wave it off. I mean, the way he sagged into the corner was just like, this is it, he's done, he's done him after all this. But then, to his credit, he got up and managed to, to beat the count at nine, got up, the referee checked if he was okay, he was okay to continue. And it was just more of the same, really. Carl stalked him down, he hunted him down, he, he picked his shots perfectly and then when he trapped Jermaine Taylor on the ropes he unloaded a barrage of punches I think it must have been something like I don't I don't know just guessing about 15 to 20 unanswered punches before the referee just decided to, to, to step him step himself in the middle of them call a halt to the fight and Cal Froch had just defended his WBC super middleweight crown whilst literally being on the verge of defeat Jermaine Taylor was on the verge of becoming a two-weight world champion by going in there and nearly beating Carl Froch on points after what was a topsy-turvy fight eventually and as I said earlier I don't believe it's one of the greatest fights I have ever seen but in terms of the way the fight turned on its head and the way Froch was on the verge of defeat essentially going to be losing that world title in just a matter of seconds if that final bell would have gone there was only 14 seconds left on the clock when the referee stopped the fight if them 14 seconds would have elapsed if the referee would have allowed it to continue for whatever reason Cal Froch probably would have lost his title on a very very close split decision yeah it would have been his first defense as well it was unbelievable how he managed it was just remarkable how he managed to just to, to finish him i mean i remember in actual fact i listened to the fight actually i didn't watch it live i actually listened to uh, mike costello on bbc and what i will say is there is actually footage on youtube if anyone really wants to just you know if you love your boxing just go back it's no, no footage it's literally mike costello talking for the fight and you know if anyone knows Mike the guy's commentary is outstanding if I know Mike is commentating I sometimes may even do it on the radio just because he's just brilliant and he, he, he just gives you goosebumps that 12th round how he, he manages to just keep going with it and just you know how he puts it out there is just brilliant and I mean to watch it is brilliant it gives you goosebumps but to hear it um, through Mike Costello as well is just fantastic it is just an epic round of boxing and, and just the way Cole was able to, you know, he knew he had to win the round. And to do it with, what was it? It was like, it was a two minutes and 46 of the rounds. When it, 46, when it stops, it's what, 15 seconds away from winning it. Even when, even with the first knockdown, he still had 30 seconds to try and recover. Um, you know, and he, he could have, I, 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 to be honest, I think the referee probably could have stopped it. He did get up at nine. He did look sort of dazed. He didn't look quite right. I, would have, I wouldn't have blamed the referee to have stopped it, but... You know, he allowed him those 30 seconds and to try, if if he could have just stayed on his feet and sort of hugged Cole, but trying to clinch him. But but Cole, to his credit, from the moment he hurt and stunned Taylor, he just wouldn't let it off. He knew he had to get the knockdown. And, you know, when he had Taylor up against those ropes and he sort of threw, as you say, sort of, I think it was like 10 to 15 shots that were just with no reply. It is, it is, that's, that was, that's sort of Cole Frotch at his best. When he's got them up against the ropes, you know, we'll obviously move on to Lucio Butte, but that is exactly the same finish, isn't it? The way he's got them up on the ropes, he's just pounding them with left and right, and they just can't. There's no fighter that, you know, when Cole's got a fighter in that position, I can't think of many guys being able to get out of it, and, you know, he 
done a fantastic job against Taylor and credit to Frotch. I mean, what a brilliant round of boxing that was. I'm going to give Frotch his credit because he was one of the best finishers in the sport. When he knew he had somebody hurt, he would certainly go in for the kill and he wouldn't let open. A lot of his fights, as you alluded to there, ended that way because they were so, so good at finishing his fights. He would not let up uh, any in his opponents and, and that is something that we'll probably come on to later on down the line with Carl Frotch and I didn't want to touch too much on the aftermath of the fight for Carl Frotch because only because of the fact that he was involved as I said earlier in one of the greatest runs championship wise in terms of tough fights that he was involved with that I've, that I've probably ever seen heard of or may never hear of again because I do believe that he had such a tough run of fights after this particular fight as I said earlier in the conversation we was talking about the original World Boxing Super Series the Super 6 with all the best super middleweights in the world went at it in a tournament to, to be crowned who's the best that was the original sort of version of what we have today of the World Boxing Super Series and some of the nights there were, were legendary nights some nights that we can talk about in episodes in the future that we can certainly sit down and talk about the Lucy and Butte fight the Kessler fights the fights with Groves we've already covered one Frotch and Groves fight and there's still another one there that was just as legendary is the first one so I didn't want to touch too much on the aftermath of Frotch's career other than saying that this particular night on his on his second coming in America essentially his American debut as, as a champion he certainly certainly came and delivered on that night and what a fantastic night to do it on but I think we've got to really look at the aftermath for Mr. Jermaine Taylor because Jermaine Taylor <laughs> after this fight he actually was involved in some in some pretty decent fights. When he lost to Carl Frotch, he then went in with Abraham and lost to Abraham via a KO in in a similar fashion. Really, he was he was quite a way a way ahead against Arthur Abraham, who was also undefeated. Thirty, you know, at the time Taylor fought him, but then his stamina just let him down again, and he got stopped by Arthur Abraham. But if you look on the record of Jermaine Taylor. And you talk about what he did at the end of his career. He beat a young Caleb Truax, who was 18-0 at the time, beat him by unanimous decision. And we know Caleb Truax would go on to beat James DeGale for the IBF super middleweight title not too long ago. And then he ended his career. The last fight Jermaine Taylor was involved in was in 2014 against Sam Solomon, where he beat Sam Solomon for the IBF world middleweight title. So he'd moved back down to middleweight, faced Sam Solomon, who was the champ at the time, and beat Sam Solomon and as it stands it doesn't look like he will be making a, a return to the ring at this point if he's 41 years of age he's had some troubles outside of the ring uh, that are well documented but for all intents and purposes his career really will always the mark will always be left especially in that middleweight division for Jermaine Taylor Oh yeah, definitely. Um, Taylor was, you know, that that is that will always cement his legacy. You know, he still holds that record as the undisputed middleweight champion still to this day after beating Bernard Hopkins in two thousand and five. So, you know, that's 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 you know that you you can't knock that. I mean, that's unbelievable. And then to repeat it and obviously uh, sort of win the rematch was brilliant. But you know, touching on the Arthur Abraham fight, he did actually he was really really badly knocked unconscious. Again, that was very very similar to Carl Frotch where. You know, although I think uh, Abraham was up on the scorecards, Taylor Manning, you know, he was he was put away badly. It was a massive, massive right hand that, that literally, you know, if anyone knows Arthur Abraham, you know, he's, he, we all know how, how that guy can he, he can hit. And it was a part of the Super Six series as well. And it was from that he was so badly unconscious he actually go went to hospital and there was actually a bleed in his brain. 
And it was from that point that Luther Bella actually turned around and said, do you know what? You know, for his own good, I'm going to walk away from, from uh, Jermaine. And I, I don't really want anything more to do with his career, mainly because he felt that, you know, he, he, didn't, he didn't want him to carry on fighting, uh, which I think probably from that point, he should have called it a day. Um, you know, Luther Bella, people will say, you know, he walked away from the early millions. Now he gets, you know, he gets a, this bleed on the brain and now he's just going to walk away. But I suppose it was, a, you know, what do you do? Do you keep going? You know, Jermaine ain't going to quit. So what do you do as a, as a promoter, as a manager? You know, it's tough. But, you know, he did go on, as you say, beat Kalinkerex. Um, and then obviously, the, just before the Salomon fight, he had the, the craziness where he shot his uh, his blood crew, mate, didn't he? He shot him five yeah. times. Uh, yeah, almost killed the bloke. Um, yeah, so uh, he went off the rails. He was on Facebook sort of ranting as well, saying he's never going to get beat by a white man again and firing an automatic in the air. I mean, it's funny when you look at it now. I mean, even 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 credit afterwards, firing this automatic in the air and he goes, fuck you, but God bless. And I think this game is completely away with the fairies. You know, he's like, yeah, he was only short of a piece of that one. He literally went mad. Um, so I wouldn't expect him to come back into the ring, but you never know. Uh, I mean, he was he was ready to go down for a 19-year sentence, and it, it got suspended. I was like, I don't, I've never known anyone have a 19-year 19-year sentence suspended, but you know that's what it is. Um, so yeah, I'm not quite too sure what Jermaine's doing at the minute, but you know, going back to the boxing, you know, the guy is still, you know, he was a bronze medalist at Sydney Games, a two-time middleweight champion, and he still holds that record for holding. Uh, being undisputed middleweight champion. He certainly does that, and it's really obviously sad to hear about all the stuff that has happened in the past couple of years with Jermaine Taylor, and obviously a lot of it has been brought on by himself, but it is just kind of sad to see what sometimes life after boxing can do to fighters. But for Carl Froch, like we said, and we've talked about on numerous occasions, he went on to have a, a wonderful career and some legendary nights, which we'll definitely be talking about in the future. But Jermaine Taylor, Carl Froch, what a night, what an epic comeback it was from Carl Froch after being on the verge of defeat. He managed to pull it out of the bag, he managed to win, defend his title for the first time uh, in emphatic fashion with only 14 seconds left on the clock in round number 12. Simply one of the best nights in, in British boxing recent memory and so many people responded to the little clip that we put out on social media a couple of days back about this fight winning the poll so many people have so many good memories of, of this particular ending of the fight it was it's what it's why it's a legendary night it's why it's come up in the poll it's why it's been voted for as the one to talk about in this week's episode and it, it just leaves me with some fantastic memories of, of what was an absolutely fantastic comeback Oh, it was it was amazing. It was epic, uh, epic performance from Carl, and, and that sequence, you know, it started from Gene Pascal, and the second part was tailing in from there. It was just, you know, it was constant, constant big fights, every fight. So the only one in there you could probably say is Yusuf Mack, probably the one that was probably, you know, I think it was a it was a defence one of the RBF. I think it was a mandatory fight. Yeah. So, but other than that, that is, is an incredible sequence, um, and and he'll always be remembered as as a fighter that did that fought everybody. Um, and I, I, you know, I've got utmost respect for Colin. You know, a fact that maybe not everybody knows, but apparently he fought in front of 80,000 people at Wembley. I don't know if people remember that one. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sure he, he will remind everyone that, you know, he's a confident guy, Nicole. As you say, he's borderline arrogant sometimes, but he is quite a character. He, you know, he, he will go down as one of the top 20 British fighters of, of, of boxing, you know, in, in boxing history. So, but a great, great fight. Great night. Um, and uh, yeah, brilliant. As I say, just it was tight as well. I mean, with, with the poll you put out there, you had you had Pacquiao and Marquez, and you had uh, uh, Taylor, uh, Meldrick Taylor and Chavez. So you know, you got 
three fights with, with Froch and Taylor, and Froch and Taylor come out on top. So it shows you the, the pedigree they're up against. It was tight, that boat. Um, but I'm not surprised because this is a brilliant. Just the 12th round makes it just an epic fight. Yeah, unbelievable fight. And that is the end of our episode covering Froch versus Taylor. So if you have enjoyed listening to this episode, please go and let us know on social media at BTR Boxing Pod on Twitter and BTR Boxing Podcast on Facebook as well. You can also go and subscribe to us. Please do. We're Apple Podcasts is the main platform to go and find us on. Subscribe, get all the latest episodes, rate and review us. It's really appreciated. If you do use other podcasting apps that are out there, Podbean, Stitcher, Spreaker, Player FM, even Spotify are also available with our podcast on there every single week bringing you different episodes. Again, we really appreciate you listening to this episode. This was the tale of Carl Froch versus Jermaine Taylor from 2009. And right now, Thomas Hearns is an open book for Ray Leonard. Backs up against the ropes. This is one of the most unusual calls by a referee in the history of the sport. The first class... Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.